Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The first months were the most difficult, and we call that all the spiders came out of the corner. So all the things that you put away, all the memories, they all come back, and you all have to look at it. Not once, but like 100 times. It's tiring shit. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Miriam Lancewood. Miriam is originally from Holland, but after finishing university, she traveled around Africa and later went to India where she met her now husband, Peter. Peter had actually resigned from his job as a uni lecturer in New Zealand and had headed to India to live like, in inverted commas, a modern nomad. He'd spent five years together there when they met and actually he's much older than her. But they developed a romantic relationship, fell in love and then went hiking in the Himalayas, Southeast Asia, Papua New Guinea, before heading back to Peter's home country of New Zealand. Whilst living there, Miriam was working as a PE teacher and they were having increasingly interesting conversations about the life they were living, the type of life they wanted to live and ultimately they made the bold, brave decision to go and live in the wilderness. So in 2010, they gave up everything they owned and they moved into the mountains with nothing but a tent and a bow and arrow. I think at the core of it, they just wanted to learn how to survive in the high mountains and to find out what happens to the body and the mind when living in wild spaces. Initially, they planned to head out there for just one year, but it ended up being seven years. In this conversation, we talk about Miriam's origins, who she is and where she comes from. We look at her relationship with Peter and ultimately why they moved back to New Zealand. But we then explore her motivations. Why move into the wilderness? What were you seeking? Were you running away from something? And then we go into detail on her experiences of living in the wilds of New Zealand. What I found especially interesting about this episode is that Miriam is not a purist. She's not living by anybody else's rules. She's not living by a code. They lived a fairly purist life out there, but they weren't opposed to occasionally seeking help. Sometimes they'd hop in a car to help them get from A to B. Sometimes they'd go to a supermarket and stock up for the winter. Sometimes they'd borrow a cabin for a few months. It's just a fascinating story and an insight into a life that is very, very rarely lived. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Miriam Lancewood. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Uh, I think it would be prudent for you to introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honoured to be on your show. Uh, my name is Miriam Lanswood, uh, born in Holland and immigrated to New Zealand, where my husband, Peter Rain, is and was and is from. <laughs> um, we travelled a lot together. We met in India. But the main uh, interesting bit about our life is that in 2010, we left civilization and moved into the wilderness of New Zealand. Initially, just one year. We want to find out what it's like for four seasons. But after one year, we thought, why the heck should we go back to town and have a job and earn money that we don't really need as much and have a life that we don't really want? And so uh, we found another way to live in a wilderness, another year, another year, another year, and it became seven years. And um, we found every year a different way. Um, otherwise, it's getting boring. So we lived in a wilderness like nomads. Um, we moved around. We didn't build a cabin and stay in one place. We um, we explored. We kept on going. And our main source of food was me hunting, because that's what I learned. I grew up as a vegetarian, <laughs> but I uh, learned how to hunt with a bow and arrow and later with a rifle. And we learned about edible plants, and we slept in a tent, and we cooked on a fire. And that's what we did for seven years. I mean, it's such an amazing story, and it's obviously going to become the focus of this conversation. But um, I'm really interested in how you got from, you know, growing up in Holland to making that decision. And what was it that gave you that initial drive to travel and see the world and eventually end up in India? Oh, Holland is flat, very, very flat and very, very crowded. And um, by the time I was 20, I was bored to death. I wanted to <laughs> travel and see the world. So I went to Africa and was teaching there for a year. And I didn't really like it as much, also because I was in a school and I didn't like being a teacher, strangely enough. And I was just generally very unhappy. Then I went to travel in India and my whole life changed when I met Peter. Uh, a man, New Zealander, much older than I was. I was 22 and he was 52. He had lots of experience. And the first thing he said is, you know what? You can find a way to live without working. And that was such a different statement. Never heard. Never heard such a thing. And he had done just that. He had worked as a university professor and he gave up his job and went to live in India, where I met him at the time. So, yeah, like many other people, when they're young, go traveling, you know, see a little bit of the world. And really, my inspiration was meeting Peter, who had such a different attitude. And he was not interested in a career, in fame, uh, in social media, none of it. Quite the opposite. Because we were both inspired by sadhus that we met in the Himalayas. And these men are always almost enlightened. <laughs> They're getting there. And they have very few belongings. And we were thinking like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have nothing? <laughs> and this is typical sort of a dream of people who have everything. So um, I grew up in a normal, you know, middle class family. But we had everything. There's no, it's not exciting to, um, to get more, to have a car. Everyone got a car. Um, so that's why it's exciting to see if you can live with absolutely the bare minimum. And that's what we did. We had no phone, um, not even a clock, not a watch. You know, we threw everything away or gave it away rather. And so, yeah, India is such a country. 
of um, of change. You know, if you go to India long term, you will change. Yeah, I mean, already just having spoken to you for whatever it is, five minutes, um, it already sounds so enticing and so attractive. And um, I think it would be good to understand, you know, what happened between meeting Peter and you've explained why that initial spark was there and how he changed you and, and the, the inspiration you found in him. But how did that relationship progress and develop? And at what point did you say, okay, let's do a year in the wilderness, off we go? Peter was always saying, let's do something different, just different. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that sounds so cool. So, yeah, we traveled over land to New Zealand, um, spending very little money, always sleeping out and, you know, we want to make our savings last. We both got savings and we want to make them last as long as possible. So we spent very little. And then I had to work one year as a teacher in New Zealand to get residency. And during that year, we are thinking of, you know, what can we do next year? We're certainly not going to do this forever. We'll be bored to death. And New Zealand is a brilliant country, especially the wilderness. Culture-wise, it's a little bit on a boring side. And, you know, a little bit um, narrow-minded, I may say. And so the, the places to be is the Southern Alps. So we wanted to go there and we went there every weekend. We went hiking or tramping, as they call it there. And uh, we didn't want to come back on Sunday afternoon. And so we thought, wow, we must find a way to live like those sados, like in India. Yeah, so slowly we started to get more ideas of um, how to get out there. And also that movie Into the Wild came out in the same year. Well, that title alone is just fantastic, isn't it? Into the Wild. And obviously you did your year teaching. Um, did you decide early on in that year that you were going to do this at the end or did it just suddenly happen and off you went? No, early on indeed. Um, after a few months... <laughs> I already thought, how oh, I'm going to make my escape plan, the big escape. Um, yeah, um, because I was sitting inside. I was looking out of the window thinking, you know, I should be out there, not being inside. Yeah. I'm just. Um, it's not that I want to escape society. It's not that I don't like people. I do like people. I'm quite a social person. But I just feel so alive, and I'm sure you can relate to that. I feel so alive in those mountains and it's just so incredibly beautiful. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I, I wonder, because, you know, I've read a few stories of people heading out into the wilderness and, and sort of to live rather than to visit, as it were. And when you read about, like, the Alaskans and the way that they've done it, often there's, you know, months or years of preparation and all the provisions and the boxes and the bags and the boat that's got everything on it and three dogs um how much did you prepare and how much did you take um we prepared in a sense of reading all those books just the ones that you just described all those expedition books how do people deal psychologically with hardship not for a weekend not for a month but for months on end you know a whole year people on antarctica for in, for example how do they deal with that and that's how we learned. Um, we learned that you have to slow down. You have to get in a different uh, mental state, and that takes time. So you have to be very patient. And also, what do we take? So we read about uh, Amundsen and the South Pole and, you know, all the leather and all that and throw away all the plastic 
trousers and and um, jumpers and that. Uh, watch uh, shoes, all of those practical things. And in the beginning, I was not able to hunt uh, because I was not skilled, right? I was yet to learn that. So we took a lot of provisions, rice, dal, uh, tea. Well, how much are we going to take for each of those items, right? So we had to calculate all this. So we needed to organize ourselves really well. And people think, oh, that's easy, live in the bush. You don't have to do anything, don't have to worry about anything. But that's not the case. You have to be extremely well organized, otherwise you're going to die. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea as well, because often, again, I refer to the Alaskan books. I was a bit obsessed with them for a long time, and I just went there this summer and read a few more. But um, they, they build a big cabin. And they live in that cabin and they put an extension on the cabin. You said you live more nomadically. What was that like in terms of how much you took and how much you carried? And what was your lifestyle like in those early days? Uh, well, we only had a tent, which is great. You can roll it up and you climb over the mountain, going into another valley, especially when the hairs are a bit scarce in the ground. <laughs> because of my hunting, um, you know, if we live for one place in, in for a long time, after a while it's getting more difficult to find the rabbits and the hares and the goats and all. So we have to move. But a tent, I love the tent. And that's where I spent lots of money on. The best tent we can find because we're completely dependent on it. And that's a plastic tent, you know, that's um, very good quality. Plastic, well, don't we love plastic when it comes to light gear? <laughs> <laughs> so we're not like uh, Luddites, modern-day Luddites, nothing to do with technology, not at all. We love plastic when we have to carry it. Um, but, yeah, we never really built a hut, also because it's not really legal in a national park, um, and so you have to be a bit careful. I, I think you get away with living in the wilderness as long as you keep on moving. If people start to understand, like, the Department of Conservation – if they start to see oh, the people living there, they're going to chuck you out. So we stayed very much under the radar. It was only after seven years that my book came out, Woman in the Wilderness, and then lots of television came. And then, well, then we were very much above the radar. <laughs> yeah. And I think we'll come on to that because I'd imagine that changed everything. But where was your head at in those early days and weeks I'm fascinated by the psychological state and what you expected versus what you experienced and all the different emotions that you faced. Yeah, so we set out to live in the wilderness because we loved it there, right? <laughs> and it was indeed very beautiful. The first day, it was like paradise. Like, aren't we lucky that we're out here? And aren't we lucky we can resign from our job? And uh, it's just elation. The second day, however, <laughs> it's like, what? What are we going to do here the rest of the four months if we stayed in one place? And so it's like, whoa, um, big realization of that boredom is rushing towards you because there's very, very little to do. Then I realized that my whole life I'd been running away from boredom. You know, I always find something to do, right? Always busy. A little bit here, a little bit there. Um and that there is a fear in all of us, me included, of that very boredom. What happens when you get bored? It's a horrible feeling, right? <laughs> um, but I had to sit through this boredom. And Peter was very helpful in that. He said, you have to learn the art of doing nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
Not meditating either. Meditation is something. Reading a book is something. Try doing nothing. But that is absolutely needed in order to, for the mind to slow down because the rhythm of the forest is much, much slower than the speed of the mind. And especially the mind had just come out of town, been relating on you know, social media, computers, phone, all that. Your mind gets sped up like hyper. And that needs to slow down. You need to slow down. And that's a slow process. It takes about two to three weeks. And it takes one day to uh, speed up again when we visit friends in, in the city. Incredible difference. So yeah, in the beginning it was hard. Very hard. Uh, especially because of that boredom. Very beautiful too. Intense. And we also realized like, wow, we're doing something quite different. At least we're doing something different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, that's a fascinating concept. And that actually is really timely to talk about it. It's something I've been reading about recently is this concept of boredom and actually the dopamine hits that we get from all sorts of things. And I think you can almost make, you know, make similar kind of um, claims as things like sugar or nicotine. You know, you don't crave sugar if you've never had sugar. You don't crave nicotine if you've never had nicotine. And actually... I think with the way that we're raised in the West with, you know, we sort of have access to everything. We can taste everything, experience everything. We can have it all 10 times a second. Well, of course, we're going to be bored all the time because we're wanting that constantly, the stimulation and the sensation. So how did you actually wean yourself off that? And do you think, do you think that's possible? Is it possible to wean yourself off that sensation of boredom outside of moving into the wilderness for seven years? Very hard. Um, I think it's almost impossible to slow down and meet the rhythm of nature if you own a cell phone. It's tragic, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, the cell phone just speeds up your mind again. And then um, you're distracted, you're entertained, but you're also bored if you don't get it. Yeah, it's an absolute addiction. I think it's a big problem. But um, luckily, when we moved into the wilderness in 2010, we didn't take any of it. No, and no machine, also no emergency beacon. Um, and I think that makes a difference. Yeah. So after seven, uh, after 10 years, I did get a um, cell phone. And what a difference that made. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm also addicted to it. Yeah, well, exactly. And again, we'll come back onto this, you know, post seven years and, and look at what your life is like now later. But you say you were bored and you learned not to be bored. What did you actually do with your days, particularly at the start? Well, very, very little. So um, there was little to do but gathering wood, um, go around for a walk, uh, and me hunting. And in the beginning, I wasn't very good at hunting at all. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. Uh, I was going to learn it by doing it, and I didn't succeed. So I spent hours and hours, days and days walking around with my bow. And only later I realized that you don't have to go in the daytime. <laughs> it's a waste of time. You should go in the twilight and then you see all the animals. Um, but yeah, all those things I still had to learn. So uh, yeah, hunting, gathering wood, uh, washing, washing clothes, washing ourselves, just the very basic things. And then going for walks and climb some tops if the weather is good. And yeah. And why you, you've said a few times... Um with me hunting so why was it just you hunting why not peter too oh um peter hasn't got such good eyes 
um, his eyesight is very bad. And so it was, um, he said, oh, you should go hunting. Also, <laughs> Robin Hood used to be my hero and always dreamt of, you know, shooting the bow and archery and those sort of things. So it's all very romantic. So, uh, and the bow itself, I still got it here on the wall. It's just such a beautiful instrument, isn't it? And so, um, yeah, it was me. I was like volunteering. Yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to be the hunter. <laughs> yeah. How long did it take you to get good, like good enough? Long time. It took me at least six months to shoot my first um, goat, and I still have the horn of the goat around my neck. Um, because for me, it's a symbol of life and death. And one day, I'm also going to be in the ground. So that means that the only thing we have really is the time of being alive. So it's the most precious thing. So we shouldn't waste it on working in jobs that we didn't want to be, <laughs> for example. But um, it took me six months to get my first goat and then a few years before I was a confident hunter. It takes a lot of time. Yep, you learn a lot of things. And I am specialized in my animals, which is the goat and the hare and the geese, I would say. I know very little about deer because... Um, a deer is a much bigger animal. We never had a fridge. So if we, uh, if I get a deer, then what's going to happen with all the meat? Just going to go to waste. So I didn't shoot many deer. Yeah, that. I mean, that's another obvious place to, to go with this conversation, I think, is, and I think for many of the listeners, they'll already be all over this concept. But, you know, you grew up as a vegetarian and now suddenly you're hunting animals as the main staple of your food supply. Where did that transition come from? How do you justify it? How did you feel about the killing? Well, I always thought no animal have has to die for me, right? It's like, and also my mum never cooked meat because she was so against all that factory, the way the chickens get raised and all that, you know, very bad for the animals. So I was against that. But I always thought, you know, if I hunt, uh, the animals had a relatively good uh, life until the end. And um, the meat would be so much healthier. And ethically speaking, it's better to eat locally <laughs> than import lentils from India all the way to New Zealand. So, yeah, um, I thought of it that way. But nevertheless, it's very hard to see an animal alive, beautiful animal, and then bang, dead. And it's my fault. You know, I murdered this innocent animal. I have seen a T-shirt with uh, eating meat is murder. And that's exactly true. It's murder. So you have to become a hunter is a murderer. Mm -hmm. That's the truth of it. <laughs> so you have to come to terms with that. And, um, yeah, I think uh, it um, might be better to be a vegetarian if you grow all the food yourself in your own garden. But the meat is very healthy for your body. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's a tough, and you know, everybody's got an opinion on it. And it's, I mean, I'm sure there's no right or wrong answer, but I think it's hard to argue against the idea that eating locally and hunting, you know, is significantly better than factory farmed or flying avocados around the world. Yeah. And also in Holland, all the animals that are living there are native. But in New Zealand, it's very different. New Zealand used to be a bird island. And the British brought all the introduced animals, introduced them all, like the deer, the pig, the goat, all that. They didn't have a natural predator. So they, um, their numbers just went sky rise. 
And so the government is now finding all sorts of measures to get the numbers down because it's a huge ecological problem. So they're called the pest. So everyone is encouraged to go hunting and get the pest numbers down. Yeah, so that's a totally different issue from Europe. Well, it's a dark, yeah. It's, I mean, that's a whole different conversation for a different day, but it's, and it's obviously a very dark, complicated past with moments of, you know, genuine pride and, and beauty, but a very dark, complicated yep. past. Well, it's got a, it's light, uh, darkness and a bit of lightning, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not all one-sided. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but I, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by this concept. I mean, you can see, you know, obviously this is an audio-only podcast, but the book's behind me. Everything behind me is kind of explorer, expedition, adventure, um, and the philosophy of those things. And yeah, these bookshelves are full... British. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but the bookshelves are full of stories of people who've gone out to live there as well. I'm fascinated by this idea of, you know, often I speak to people who are going on journeys for a week, six weeks, sometimes two or three months. And sometimes they're cycling around the world, but that's a slightly different concept again. I think you're living in this environment. I, as I understand it, you're not going to supermarkets. You know, you're not. Um, resupplying very regularly. So once the honeymoon period had ended, once you'd kind of settled into this new life of yours, where was your head at then and what was life like? I mean, can you describe your life to me after two or three months? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, well, you said um, we settled into our new life, but everything Peter and I do is always temporarily. Even our relationship, like because of the age difference, it's like, okay, we are together now, but maybe next year, you know, we go our own way. And then that way, it all keeps very um, enjoyable and exciting and new. And the same for living in the wilderness. We never thought, right, I guess we're going to live seven years in the wilderness. <laughs> I think that would be quite a uh, mental chain. So, uh, no, we never did. So we thought, okay, we, what shall we do this year? Just one year at a time, sort of. But, um, yeah, after the first sort of um, uh, elation of the honeymoon period, um, well, we also became more skilled. So it was a little easier. We knew our way around things. And we started in the winter. So once the winter was over, it was a lot more easy and enjoyable. Days were longer. I got better with hunting. And wow, that's when things start rolling a bit more. So yeah, that was also good. And in our second year, we did stay in one place and I learned how to grow a garden. Because actually, we go a little bit back in time, I had set out to learn all the survival skills because on arrival in New Zealand, 
Peter met his brother. And the brother said, well, if the shit hits the fan, I'm going to blow up all the bridges and only the people with skills come across the river. And I was thinking, shit, what skills do I have? And I had nothing. So I thought, well, maybe I should start with hunting, growing food, learn about um, plant medicine, uh, tanning skins, uh, building huts. And over the years, I've learned all these things, I must say. Yeah, it's been good fun. And how much of that, because I think many of us are interested in those concepts and those skills, but we don't have them. How much of that do you think is just this romantic notion of trying to live in a world that's not here anymore? And how much of it is about kind of connecting to cultural heritage or sense of place? Or how much of it is you want to actually practically use these skills as a method of living? Yeah, well, I think that world is still here. <laughs> and it never went away. I mean, you can learn how to hunt anytime. The only thing is which place you're going to be. Like me, living in Holland would be dreadful. I wouldn't learn any of these things, indeed. It's too crowded. And if you uh, build something, oh, my God, you get arrested. Um, you get fined. No, no, no. So um, you have to live in the right place. But, um, yeah, last year, we are now living in Bulgaria. I built my first hut and learned about these things. Um, yeah. The thing is, I am a little against, you know, trying to go 100% like the Stone Age people. Uh, I just use tools. Why wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> so it makes it a lot easier. Um, so, yeah, I think you can learn these skills. You just need time. That's the whole problem. People don't have time. They're busy working to pay the mortgage. I'm interested. I, I didn't say in our introduction, so I'll just do it now with an audience listening. Um that, you know, if you disagree with anything I say, then you absolutely can. Like, I'm, I'm really open to being disagreed with. But I, I often get challenged because I say to people, you know, adventure is accessible, exploration is accessible. Some of it's more accessible than others. But people often say, well, it's easy for you because you've got the skills, you've got the experience, you've set your life up to be able to do that. We've got full-time jobs. Do you think... It's as simple as you make out that people can just not do that anymore and live differently. Or is it hard and rare? Yeah. No, it's very simple to just give up. But what people will not do is to live without security. The security of the family, the security of what you know, the security of having health insurance and all of these things. That is the hard bit. But the practical thing, no, anyone can... Um, you know, put the keys in a letterbox and walk out. Uh, organize that. Of course, it takes time. But uh, to organize the selling your house and putting the money in the bank and, you know, set off. But uh, it's very doable. It's possible, right? <laughs> and it's not that you were lucky. You also started, so you also started inexperienced, right? And Peter and I, we walked in the mountains with nothing because we thought you don't have to have fancy gear to walk to climb the Himalayas. And so we went like the local people 18 years ago. And we literally went without tent. We just wear wooden walking sticks. You absolutely do not need anything. But you got to harden up a bit. And you don't have the security of a tent. Uh, bears can come. Leopards can come. Yeah, that's the hard bit. And I think what, what you've done is amazing, but I wonder if it's, if it's kind of replicable to a really minor scale, where actually rather than going to climb a mountain or 
going on an adventure style holiday, actually just stripping everything back and going into the wilderness for two weeks and taking off the watch and leaving the phone at home. And, you know, two weeks would still be a major experience if you just binned everything. Yeah, indeed. That would be an amazing start. And that's what I say to people who like to live in the wilderness. See if you like it first and go indeed for two or three weeks. But that would be the very hardest two or three weeks. After that, it will be easier because your mind is slowed down. But yeah, people don't have such long holidays. But yeah, to sit in the forest and be completely calm. Um, I do wonder though, and I'm not sure if you agree with that, that some people might get some sort of mental breakdown. If you're mentally not stable, uh, what would happen, I wonder? Will they go mad? Yeah. But is, I, I mean, this is going to get very um, deep and heavy now, but uh, what define madness? Like, you could argue that sitting at a desk in a suit every day or five days a week for 40 years is more of a definition of madness than giving up everything you own to go and hunt hares in the wilderness. Yeah, that's right. And people slowly do go mad and they are they find a way of life normal, which is absolutely insane and very self-destructive. But some people get a mental breakdown and then they absolutely go mad, you know. Um, I only heard the stories. I've never experienced it myself, thank God. And what do you think happened to you over a period of, I mean, you're talking seven years. I think that's what's really, really amazing about this story is seven weeks would be cool, seven months would be really cool. I love this idea that you got to the end of the year that you planned and you both said, should we just do another? Yeah, indeed. Partly was also because we had given up everything, so we had no plan B. It wasn't like, oh, shall we go home? No, there was no home. And I think that's very important to have no, you know, burn all your bridges behind you. (laughs) That's what I recommend. But yeah, what happened to me over the years is in the first months were the most difficult. And we call that all the spiders came out of the corner. So all the things that you put away, all the memories, they all come back. And you all have to look at it. Not once, but like hundred times. It's tiring shit. So all what I said, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago to a friend, you know, in primary school. (laughs) It's ridiculous. But all that shit come back. But there is no new stuff that comes because no social media, nothing to compare with, right? There's nothing new. There's no new conflict. So the mind gets a bit more empty, empty in the sense of uh, more clear. And um, over the years, more clarity came, more clarity of what should I be doing with my day? What should I be doing with my life? I don't know, but obviously not that. So that's the via negativa, the, um, that you know what you don't want. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. I, again, I asked this question with total kindness, but was there any part of you that was running away from something rather than looking for something else? Um, I don't think so. Because <laughs> as I said... Um, I don't, it's not that I dislike society. I do like people and I have a very good relationship with my family. And that was the, in the beginning, the most difficult bit, the lack of contact with them. And I really felt like, wow, we're so far away, which is exactly true. Uh, cause they were in Holland and I was on the other side of the world. Um, no, I wasn't really running away. I didn't like that my teaching job, but, um, 
it's not that I said I don't never want to work again, uh, but not rather not in a school. <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't that horrible, and I, um, you know, I had I had pretty good time for that year as a teacher in New Zealand. So no, it wasn't uh, running away. And I think if it was for that reason, then you you grow very unhappy and fearful. Because then it's like, whoa, I don't want to go back to the human world because I'm afraid for it. And that would be horrible too. So did you not leave at all for seven years? Yeah, um, because in the beginning, I wasn't much of a hunter. So we always had rice and lentils and all that. So after four months, we had to go back to town to for resupply. And then we had to find another way of getting that food into the wilderness, which is always a problem. So in the beginning, we had a friend with a truck and we put all the food in buckets and we put that, you know, drive far up the valley and bury all that food in, in buckets in the ground. And in the summer, we had a, we made a friend. He arrived in a helicopter <laughs> and in a little Robertson 22, tiny helicopter. And he said, oh, I'll help you with your supplies for your next season. So every time we find ways to get our supplies in the bush. But yeah, we had to go out and st we stayed with a friend in town. It was very exciting. And look at the news and all that, what has happened in the world. And after a week, we're back in the mountains. It's amazing. I love what I really like as well is there's not this kind of purist mentality, which I often think some people take. And it's like, yeah, we've got a friend with a helicopter who's going to resupply us. And this guy's got a truck and, you know. Yeah. You're just having a very, very authentic experience in your own way. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, no extreme. And also, after two years, I discovered uh, bow hunting was really difficult. So I got myself a rifle. Much easier. <laughs> yeah, it was, and that must have been a whole different learning curve. And yeah, but be, because I learned stalking so well with bow hunting, hunting with a rifle was so easy. But I also discovered it was much more humane. A bullet. Uh, kills the animal straight away, and the, and the arrow doesn't. So actually, I would say uh, rifle hunting is much better for the animal. Yeah, they, I think they, I completely agree. There's a romance to the the bow and arrow, right? Yeah. But it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, amazing. So you said you um, spent some time growing food and kind of trying to tend a garden and living a bit more like that. Yeah. When did that end and why did you return to the nomadic wilderness style living? Oh, after the, our first year, we thought, okay, well, that was pretty extreme now. And uh, actually, it was just because people offered offered a place in the middle of Abel Tasman National Park. They said, there's a little hut there. Would you like to stay there? Okay. And every time people offer or suggest things. So we don't really make up our life. We go with through open doors, we call it. So whenever there's something offered, we do just that. It's the easy way. It's kind of, as you can probably tell, it's kind of blowing my mind. I mean, I love it. <laughs> I love the whole thing. It just feels so real. It feels like you weren't trying to please anybody else or like get famous or... Oh, no, never. No, we're very much under the radar. And I was, at that, those days, you know, changing my email address all the time. So I kept, you know, incognito. <laughs> and um, yeah, to... Um, to be unseen, yeah. And also, people came, sometimes we saw other hunters, and they say, oh, what are you doing? And then we, had, we made up this lie that we were in between jobs and we were very short term there in the bush, only a couple of weeks, because we didn't want any rumours to go around, because New Zealand is a very small country, everyone knows everyone. 
And um, yeah, so we're just lying like, no, 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 we just stay for a couple of weeks. So what changed ultimately? You know, you did one year, you've done six years, you've done seven years. What changed? Oh, so we walked the Tiaroa Trail, which is 3,000 kilometers from the top to the bottom of New Zealand. Other people do this in four or five months, but we have an ocean of time. So we spent 10 months on the trail. It's great fun. There's no need for us to rush. You know, shoot a goat, we have a rest for a week. Why shouldn't we? <laughs> There's absolutely no reason why we should do many kilometers or to get it done before a certain date because there's nothing after. There's nothing after planned, you know. <laughs> anyway, after this Tiara Roma trail, we thought, wow, this is fantastic, this walking. This is us. And Peter was, he only started that at age 63. So it's quite amazing for, to, for him to do that at that age. So he was like, yeah, I should do this now while I'm still very good at this. So then we left New Zealand and we went to Europe and we walked through Europe. And uh, that was really tough because uh, you can't really stay in one place very easily. There's not so much water. People chase you away. <laughs> There's more population. But yeah, it was a very good journey. We did uh, 2,000 kilometers through Europe and Turkey. And on the way, we came through Bulgaria. And there we saw a beautiful little stone cottage for 2,500 euro. And it was for sale. So we sold it. We bought it, I mean, and that's where I am right now. 2,500 euros? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So if you're willing to live um, far away, you know, it's no electricity here. We just, I'm charging this cell phone on a little solar panel. Um, there's no bathroom. We, I dug a hole in the forest and that's our toilet. I, we wash in the garden under the, you know, a tap that is eternally running. And uh, we bought this some years ago. And then we lived in it for some time, and then we moved back to New Zealand. And in 2021, we came back here because we remembered we got this little cottage. And so what's your life like now? What do you, and <laughs> this is like classic, you know, me living in the normal, in inverted commas world question, like, what do you do? What do you do all day? Yeah, yeah, indeed. It's amazing that uh, I don't have a job, um, and yet the days are quite filled up. I go for a walk. We, we, a dog came by and never left. Really sweet dog. So now we have a dog. Very nice, but also problematic when you want to leave. But uh, yeah. Um, and a cat. We've got a cat too. So we uh, walk the dog, you know, just she goes hunting. <laughs> and luckily, I know what to do when she gets a deer. And it's really good that I know how to butcher that deer up. And that's the way we get... Um, we get made now. But, um, yeah, we get firewood for the, um, to cook. Um, How big is your dog if it's taking down a deer? <laughs> oh, small. I have a meter or so, but, yeah, she's a good hunter. Wow. Oh, but the deer are very small also. Uh, there's our um, roe deer, okay. and they're only like one big. They're the size of a goat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's amazing. So in all this time... You know, I know you've written a book, obviously, so I'm sure most of this is in there. But at the core of it, what do you think you've learned? What's the main point? The main point I learned, I've just come back from the Himalayas. I did an expedition for two months and I came back last week. And I realized again over there that you are what you are surrounded by. 
If you are in the city, you will become that. If you are in the mountains, you will become that. And that, I mean, the purity, the clarity, uh, eternity even, because it's so old. Um, and if you're in a city, you become part of that uh, frenzied energy and the short-term thing. You know, everything is very short-term in the city. And uh, part of the pollution and everything, confusion. Yeah, so I think it's very, very important where you are. And what, what, what is the place you want to be and what is the place you want to become? Yeah, this is my main lesson I learned in the Himalayas. And do you, do you have a plan for your life? Do you know what you want to do next or are you just a day-to-day kind of person? Um, I think I want to stay nomadic until I don't want to stay nomadic. <laughs> um, well, our philosophy is to go through open doors. So we don't plan everything too much and see what comes on our way because it's so much easier. It's so much easier. You don't have to break doors open. You don't have to work for it, you know. <laughs> And uh, things just flow. But for that, sometimes nothing happens. No door opens and you just sit still. And then it seems a little boring. But hey, after that, the river flows again. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Is there anything you miss? Um, Yes. One thing that I really liked when I was living in Holland was singing in a choir. To have those voices together and to create that harmony is really something amazing, magical even. And, uh, of course, that's I'm never experienced again in the bush. You don't have music. There's <laughs> none of that out there. None of that here either. No, not many people around here. But do you know, you know, you have a smartphone, as you say now. Do you, do you listen to music now? Well, strangely enough, not as much as you will think. Yeah. Um, also, because in the wilderness, it's such a full life that we missed actually nothing. There was no space to miss something. It's a weird concept, but it's true. And so I learned how to live without all these things. Um, yeah, sometimes I put on some music. And only recently I got a little loudspeaker. And since yesterday, we're listening to some good quality music. So, yeah, it's really good fun. I don't think I could live without music. Yeah, that's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, well, I mean, there's hours I could do on this conversation <laughs> topic. But um, to draw it to a close... At the end of every conversation, I always ask people the same two questions. Um, the first is what scares you? Okay, what scares me? What scares me if that um, Peter is now is getting 70 this Sunday, uh, is getting a bit older, and also a few years ago he had kidney failure. So my main fear in life is that he is going to die. Now, I know this is coming. He will die one day. Uh, what scares me if that to go mad? That's it. The very topic we talked about. <clears throat> I think many people have this fear that I'm so um, thrown off balance, so absolutely, um, yeah, taken by it that my mind cracks up and then then I go mad uh, of sorrow. Yeah, that will be it. Wow, that's very poignant. <laughs> and what and what brings you hope? Brings me hope. Oh, that must be the forest. Yeah, the moment I am in the forest, I am. Uh, I feel at home. And, of course, linking to the first one, being with Peter. So we've been together now 18 years. So it's pretty much my entire adult life. And we spent like 24-7 together, apart from my trip in the Himalayas just now. Um, so, yeah, we are like one in a way. Yeah, we are the young and the old. 
the calm and the energetic and um, everything together. Amazing. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great conversation. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. 